name is Deanna Sapier, and I'm here with Reza Shahadi, who I'll introduce properly in a moment once everyone has come into the room. Um, in the meantime, those of you that are already here, I will remind you that this is a Balfour Project event, um, and we are very pleased that many returning members are, are joining us today. Um, the Balfour Project has a very clear aim, which is peace, justice, and equal rights in Israel and Palestine. And the mission is acknowledging Britain's continuing historic responsibilities to uphold equal rights for the Israeli and Palestinian peoples through popular education and advocacy, and to convince the British government to recognize the state of Palestine alongside the state of Israel. So we are very, very lucky to have Raja here today. As always, please do post any questions you have in the chat box. Raja will not be looking at the chat box during the presentation. Um, he'll be concentrating on giving us an excellent presentation, of course, but I will be sharing the chat box with him afterwards. So he will see all of your comments, questions that we don't manage to answer during this chat. Uh, there have been quite a lot of questions that have come in in advance, and I'm sure there will be loads in the chat box. We'll try to get through as many of them as we can after his presentation as always, um, but please bear with us. Um, can you not hear me properly? Is the sound okay? I've had, a comment that the, I've had a comment that the sound isn't great. So if um, people could let me know um, what you think, that would be good. Um, in the meantime, I'll carry on. We are starting to, oh no, we've still got lots of people who can, oh, thank you all for the comments. I'm glad that most of you can hear me. Um, Nina, perhaps if you could check if your volume is on your, up on your computer, maybe, maybe that will help. Um, thanks everyone, glad to hear the sound is working. So the numbers are kind of stabilizing now. So I think everyone is kind of, um, has joined us now. So I would just like to introduce Raja. Um, Raja is a lawyer and a writer and he's a founder and the pioneer and a pioneering human rights Palestinian. Um, it's a Sorry, I will start that again. He is the founder of the pioneering Palestinian human rights organization, Al Haq, which many of us are very, very um, familiar uh, with and very much in awe of. Um, Raja is the author of several books. A lot of us have read his books. Um, Palestinian Walks is one of my favorites and um, as well as Strangers in the House, Occupation Diaries, Language of War, Language of Peace, um, A Rift in Time, Where the Line is Drawn, and most recently, Going Home, A Walk Through 50 Years of Occupation. Um, when, we, when we post the event on our website, we put all of our recordings of our events on our website. I will make sure that we post the link, Raja, to your books and where they can be found. Um, Raja is joining us from Ramallah, which is amazing. And um, like I said, if you could post your comments and your questions in the chat box, at the end we'll have a Q&A session and I will relay the questions and I will be sharing the chat box with Raja after the event. So he'll see all your comments, including all those about how my sound is fine. Thank you all. So I'll hand, you, hand it over to you, Raja. Thank you again so much on behalf of everyone here um, for joining us today. And we're super excited to hear about um, what you have in store for us today. Over to you. Well, thank you, Diana, and my thanks to the Belfort Project for this opportunity to speak to you this afternoon. I would like to begin by commending the work of Monica and Roger Spooner, 
who have worked very hard to get this project established and going. I had the privilege of following their work in its early days and can attest to how determined they were to make it happen against all odds. The brief history I present here about the relations between Britain and Palestine is selective. I focus on events in which my father, Aziz Shahadi, played a role. Much of what I will cover in this talk is taken from my new book, which is about my father and his political involvements, due to be published by Profile Books next year. How often have I heard father exclaim in reference to the loss of Palestine, it was all the fault of the English. He blamed the English through their policies in mandate Palestine for sowing enmity between Arabs and Jews in pursuit of their divide and rule strategy. My father was born in 1912 during the rule of the Ottomans over Palestine. During his younger years from 1917 to, to 1920, he lived under British military rule, then from 1922 to 1948 under the British mandate set up by the League of Nations. After qualifying to practice law in 1935, Aziz wrote a short book, which he called ABC of the Arab case in Palestine. Here is the book. In it, he expressed a novel opinion that the terms of the mandate did not serve only the Jewish population. He supported this by quotes from the articles of the mandate. Then on page 20, he wrote of what he thought of the British, of the mandate government. And I quote, the Palestinian, the Palestine government is serving five masters. It tries to please all at the same time. The Arabs, the Jews, the colonial office, the permanent mandate commission, and the questioning members of the British House of Parliament. It is thus one of the most perplexed governments in the world. It has no heart or will of its own. Normally, it is supposed to follow the dictates of the colonial office, but it easily becomes swayed by questions which are asked in the House of Commons by Jewish members or sympathizers, finally coming up against what the Permanent Mandates Commission may approve or disapprove, unquote. With some modification, this might still represent the way it is today with the British government's policies towards Israel and Palestine. My grandfather, Dr. Salim Shahadi, a graduate of Cornell University, was a district court judge with the mandate government. Both my father and grandfather knew well the government they lived under and had no illusions. But my grandfather was the more realistic about the ultimate plans of the British for the region and their determination to betray the Palestinians. After my father delivered a speech on behalf of the Ramallah Refugees Congress at the Jericho Conference on December 1st, 1948, challenging the unconditional annexation of the West Bank to Transjordan, his uncle wrote to him from Beirut, where he had taken refuge after being forced out of Jaffa. 
He wrote, there is no hope in the second front, meaning the Palestinian state. The future of Palestine is with King Abdullah alone. My father, on the other hand, refused to submit and until his death fought for the establishment of a, of a Palestinian state side by side to Israel. According to the UN partition plan of 1947, Jaffa was to be part of the Arab state in Palestine. This made Aziz believe that he would be able to continue living in Jaffa after the war. That was why he did not want to leave the city. But the terror launched by the Irgun on the evening of 28 April 1948 that followed other Jewish terrorist attacks convinced my father that it would not be safe for him with a two-year-old child to remain in the city. He could see that the British army was failing in its duty of protecting the civilian population. On May 14, the British army withdrew. Britain has never been held accountable for its criminal negligence in defending, in failing to defend the UN partition plan for which it had voted. But it did not stop there. The initiative of the Jaffa refugees to return to their city that summer was blocked by John Bagot Glob, the commander of the Arab Legion in Jordan, as the Jordanian army was then called, who arrested the leaders of that initiative and prevented them from carrying through with their plan. This was followed by another betrayal, again by Glob, of the people of Lidda and Ramli, who called for help of the Arab army in the struggle to stay in their cities. In July 1948, the second round of fighting by the 4,500 strong Arab legion took place along the route between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. But Glob decided to withdraw his forces from the area that had been designated part of the Palestinian state under the UN partition plan. This left the cities of Lidda and Ramli undefended and allowed the Israeli army to force their inhabitants at gunpoint to leave their cities. Mass demonstrations in Jordan protested Glob's abandonment, of course, to no avail. Unbeknown to my father, secret negotiations between Britain and the Hashemites had already been taking place as early as 1947. The British were exploring the possibility that the Arab parts of Palestine that they believed would be unviable as a Palestinian state on their own would be fused with the Hashemite kingdom of Transjordan established in 1946. At a secret meeting in London in February 1948, Ernst Bevan, the UK Foreign Secretary, gave King Abdullah of Jordan the green light to take part of Palestine, provided the King's forces stayed away of those parts allotted by the UN partition plan to the Jews. 
Following the 1948 war, Israel had not only expelled the Palestinians from their country, but had also frozen all their bank accounts. Not only had it deprived the, ref the refugees of their properties and taken over their country, they were also pursued across the border and deprived of the means to live in the countries where they were exiled. Israeli officials were working on the principle of no money, no country. They wanted to turn the Palestinians into beggars. And this was exactly what happened to a large number of them. When Israel declared itself a state, it inherited all the institutions existing in Palestine. Under the British mandate, Palestine and Transjordan had the same currency and were treated as a single currency area for the purposes of exchange control. Palestine had a currency board and the Palestinian pound was equivalent to the pound sterling. In February 1948, a British treasury announcement was made with no prior notice or explanation that it would, quote, exclude Palestine from the sterling area and henceforth suspend the free convertibility of Palestinian pounds into pounds sterling, unquote. It also stated that the Palestine Currency Board would no longer, quote, after May 14, 1948, continue to issue Palestinian pounds, unquote. In other words, upon the termination of the mandate, the Palestinian currency will no longer be legal tender. What has been aptly described by Walid Khalidi as the shabbiest regime in British colonial history was ending without attending to the most basic needs of the majority of the inhabitants of the land. For, for the thousands of Arab Palestinian refugees who were by then forced to flee to other countries, this meant that they were neither able to exchange the Palestinian pounds into pounds sterling or any other Arab currency before they left, nor could they withdraw sums from their accounts in other currencies once they arrived. Arab clients of the Jaffa branch of the Ottoman bank, now refugees in Lebanon and Jordan, were asking the bank to pay them their balances in, in Amman and elsewhere. But these requests were refused. Heart-wrenching letters were being written to the banks some also to the British government, others to the Bank of England, only to get the insulting perfunctory responses that British officials were experienced in drafting from the long colonial history, in which they shirked all responsibility as if the matter of their erstwhile clients was no concern of theirs. The fate of these assets was left to the state of Israel which proceeded to order all commercial banks operating within its territory to, quote, freeze the accounts of all their Arab customers and to stop all transactions on all Arab accounts, unquote. The Israeli government gave the banks one month to comply with this order and threatened to revoke 
the license of any bank found to be in non-compliance. By the end of December 1948, every bank operating in Israel had obeyed the order. Two years later, the custodian of absentee properties in Israel, who was custodian in name only, withdrew a large amount from the Arab bank's frozen account at Barclays Bank and explained to the local manager that, quote, the reasons for the substantial withdrawal of funds was to finance an irrigation scheme, unquote. Israel was irrigating the orchards it had stolen from the Palestinians using Palestinian funds for their upkeep with no intention of returning these orchards to the rightful owners. In 1950, the Arab Bank submitted a case in London against Barclays Bank that went all the way up to the House of Lords, which in 1953 issued a judgment in favor of Barclays Bank. A year later, my father took a case in the Jordanian courts against Barclays Bank, which had also refused to pay its clients who had accounts at the bank's Israeli branches. He won the case, forcing the bank to pay up. Having won that case, he had plans to take up other cases against Israel in the courts. But this was not in line with the British plans for the future and would have gone against Jordanian government's appeasement outlook supported by the British. In 1954, when parliamentary elections were declared in Jordan, Aziz and other independents decided to run as candidates and to try and bring changes through parliamentary efforts. But the regime used all kinds of means to ensure father's failure. Glob, who wielded much power in the country, would not allow parliamentary democracy to flourish in Jordan because this would complicate his mission of controlling the policy of the country to the advantage of Britain. After the elections, my father was put in prison along with other candidates. It now became clear to him that it was necessary to work on ousting Glob if democracy was to have a chance of flourishing in Jordan. He knew that King Hussein did not like Glob, who had been imposed on the young king by the British. Yet he could not get rid of him, even though the Englishman was doing so much damage and treating the country like his personal playground, arresting people and allowing the prisoners to be tortured, as my father himself had experienced. He suspected that the government in London did not know what was being done in its name, and that if he, they were briefed, they would take action to stop it. So he was determined that on his next visit to London, he will lobby against Glob. As soon as he was released from prison, he traveled to London to negotiate with Barclays Bank the release of the safe deposit boxes of his Palestinian refugee clients. While in London, he learned that Glob had issued an order 
for his arrest, for negotiating with Israel when he had done nothing of the sort. He remained in exile, unable to return home for 27 months. While in London, Aziz drafted, along with his colleague, Muhammad Yahya, a memorandum dated June 23, 1955, to the British Parliament, which covered a range of subjects relating to the refugees and then expressed their belief that the statement by the Jordanian foreign minister that the two Palestinians had negotiated with Israel could not have been made without knowledge and approval of the British Embassy in Jordan. They added, we need not stress the point that although the Jordan government is considered as an independent state, such influence is felt daily by the citizens of Jordan. He then gives an example of the recent parliamentary elections and accuses Glob Basha of the forgeries and the harsh measures that were adopted during these elections. They write, we have first-hand information about what had taken place. As I read this, after I secured a copy from the archive of St. Anthony's College, Oxford, I marveled at my father's audacity and courage. To complain to the British government about Glob when the man exercised such great power over him and his family. Truly, he was fearless, but perhaps overly optimistic that the British would lift a finger to help him or his cause. With all he knew of the British and, an un and their unprincipled behavior during the mandate, when they tortured prisoners, demolished homes, and hanged the rebels during the 1936 uprising and afterwards, how could he have expected justice from them? Why would they want to change their policies in the region and remove their agent in Jordan just because of the accusations of wrongdoing that Aziz Shahadi and Muhammad Yahya had presented? My father was arrested again in 1958. By then, Glob had been removed. This happened in March 1st, 1956. This time, the arrest took place in the, in the wake of a coup in Iraq that toppled and killed King Faisal. Aziz was sent to the Jafar Desert prison established by no other than Glob. On his way there, Aziz noticed the remnants of railway tracks. At first he wondered what these could be. Then he realized that they must be part of the Hejaz railway line, that much heralded line that once linked Berlin with Baghdad and ultimately the Hejaz with branch lines to Jerusalem, Amman, Bissan, and Haifa, and another line that was never completed to Nablus. What had been the promise of great connectedness between the various parts of the Middle East and Europe ended in partition and the loss of Palestine. The shattering of that dream had begun with the dynamiting of these tracks by no other than an Englishman, T.E. Lawrence, during World War I, at best for military reasons. Nonetheless, 
In the wake of that terrible war, Britain and France carved up the region into small states, giving the ambitious Abdullah a statelet, which he proceeded to enlarge at the expense of Palestine with British backing. With Palestine lost, my father and others were now reduced by the Jordanian regime to the status of common criminals, feet shackled, banished from society, away from their wives and children, herded into the desert like cattle without explanation or justification other than a British made law on administrative detention. But the detrimental role of the British in our life and the deprivation of our freedom did not stop there. After 1967, I realized, as my father had done before me, that the English bequeathed us with a legacy of terrible practices and legislation that the Israeli occupation have found extremely useful and continue to use them to this day. I only mention here one example, the Defense Emergency Regulations of 1945 issued by the British mandate which have since the beginning of the Israeli occupation been deployed by Israel to justify such egregious human rights violations as house demolitions and indefinite administrative detention orders. We really have much to thank the British for. Over the years, and as long as Britain was in the EU, it continued to block policies that could bring justice to the Palestinians and often acted as defender of the interests of Israel's right-wing government. And it continues to refuse to recognize Palestine as a state. In today's world, Britain is considered one of Israel's right-wing government's staunchest allies. But what has been true of the English as a government has not been the case of the English as a people. My life has been greatly enriched and influenced by many English and Scottish men and women whom I have known and worked with over the years, who have supported me in a number of ways and promoted both my human rights work and my writing. Their number is large. Here, I would only like to highlight the work of one of them, Peter Coleridge, who died in June 2019. In addition to his pioneering work for the promotion and protection of disability rights as Oxfam representative in the West Bank and Gaza in 1981, he was the first to lend Oxfam's support to the work of Al Haq when Palestinian human rights work was untouchable. By doing so, he encouraged other organizations to go along. This initial support during the organization's early days proved extremely crucial to ensure that it continued its work. And Peter is but one of many Britishers who have stood with and supported justice for Palestine. In contrast to the position of their government, their work for the promotion of Palestinian rights and the cause of peace in our region continues to proceed at a greater pace than ever. I would like to end by thanking the Belfort Dec Project for the lobbying group, lobbying work it is doing to further justice in Palestine and for providing me with this opportunity to speak about Britain 
and Palestine from the perspective of my own family. Thank you. That was fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, I'm sorry, you ended your talk just as a loud motorcycle is going by outside. So apologies if you can pick up on that. Um, we've had lots of comments and um, lots of questions, which I will go through. I um, will, I just want to let everyone know that the recordings will be going up on the website. We put up all the recordings of all our past events in the past events section of our website. So please do share them widely. Thank you, Ian Scobie, for saying that you'll share this with your students. Um, we have a very, very lovely group of people who have come join us. We've got over 300 people um, watching today, and they include obviously our trustees, Sir Vincent, Andrew Whiteley, and so forth. So we're really happy they've joined us. We've got Andrew Slaughter and Colin Green. So I'm sure you recognize some of these names. We've got some people from St. John, Denise McGoran, Georgie Brooks, Nina Zamaya. Um, and lots of people from the Twinning Network, from Friends of Palestine. So hello, everyone. Thank you so much for coming along. If you have any questions, please do post them in the chat box. And we're going to try to get through as many of them as possible. Had a lot of people saying hello from their different groups in, in town. So I will pass those on to Raja. Um, so I'm going to start with a question from A. Payim. Um, is there anywhere in the occupied West Bank where Palestinians can enjoy a walk or roam around without interference and assault from settlers in um, and the Israeli occupational army? Well, it's getting smaller and smaller the area where we can walk. And the problem is that even in these smaller areas where you don't cannot, can walk without expecting confrontation with the settlers, you can still see the settlements and seeing the settlements breaks away the beauty of the walk because then all the uh, all the ideas and the horrors of the settlements and what they're doing and how they're spoiling the landscape and and making the life so much more difficult and the possibility that they might come and attack all of this makes for a, a proper sarha a, a walk with where one lets go and forgets everything it stops that possibility and and brings in the thoughts of the colonialism and the problems and so on so although there are small areas where one can walk without confronting settlers. It's getting smaller and smaller, shrinking more and more all the time. And it's a terrible feeling of a shrinking, vanishing landscape that we are enduring for now over four decades. Not really conducive to a, a meditative yeah. walk, is it? Um, yeah. We've got a lovely question from Emily Swain. She's just asked, what is the most important thing your father and grandfather taught you? Well, I think uh, persistence of keep on, keep on get going on and on and on and trying and, and never giving up. I think, especially my, I didn't know my grandfather because he died before I was born, but my father, I knew well, of course, and, and uh, worked with him over many years and, and he never gave up. He never gave up. Although every, all, all the forces were united against him and uh, belittled his idea of a Palestinian state and, and said it is impossible and called it a joke and called it all kinds of things and, and gave him a very hard time and took his passport and took his uh, license to practice law and, and made life very difficult for him. He never gave up. And I think that was the most important lesson I learned from my father, never to give up and to work hard on, on what one believes in. That's a lovely message. Um, I've got a question in from the chair of the Balfour Project, Sir Vincent Thiem. Um, 
the legacy of the mandate in terms of the 1945 emergency regulations, does that include administrative detention? Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, now Khalid Jarrar, for example, who has been in administrative detention over many, many years, off and on, off and on, is, is in administrative detention on, on, by virtue of the defense emergency regulations. And, and house demolitions are by virtue of the defense emergency regulations. So defense emergency regulations, although my father had argued very convincingly that they did not, were not part of the law when Israel took over, which is contrary to what Israel claims. They claim that it was part of the law of the land when they took over. Uh, and he, he argued against that, but they never accepted that argument. You see, if, if we, they, they say that what was the law of the land when they took over it, it continues, and, and they say the defense military regulations were part of the law of the land, but it, in fact it wasn't, but it was convenient for them to argue that it was, and so they do. Well, we've had quite a lot of comments about um, people saying that they didn't know very much about the situation with the currency and the monetary assets and, and how that worked during the mandate period before and after. So lots of comments about people uh, from people saying that they really appreciated that side of the talk. Well, um, let me, Diana, let me say that I go into great, greater detail in my book about this. And so if people are interested, they should read the book, but it, it will be out next year. Fantastic. We'll all keep an eye out for that, I'm sure. Um, from Farzana Sacker, I'm sorry, uh, as always, apologies if I pronounce anyone's name, name wrong. Um, Farzana, you're one of our dear supporters, so thank you for joining us today. Do you think Jordan and the UN failed Palestinians? Oh my God, Jordan not only failed, they, they, they took over the Palestine, that uh, the part of Palestine that was destined to be a state, uh, an Arab state alongside the Jewish state. That's one part. The UN never fulfilled its commitment toward uh, Palestine and has failed and continues to fail. And, and uh, they, they just declare, declarations are useless. And, and they never fulfill the, their uh, Security Council resolutions, most important of which 242, for example, never, was never fulfilled. They never take ac effective action uh, in, when it comes to Palestine. And so, yes, they absolutely failed Palestine. Um, thank you for that. We've got a question from Martin Linton, who um, I'm sure you know well, um, yes. big supporter and great man. Hello, Martin. Hi, Sarah. Um, he wants to know, are your books published in Hebrew? They should be. And if they are, have you had any signing sessions in Israeli bookshops or any interesting comments? Well, you know, it's, it's divided into two periods, this, this uh, thing. In, in earlier periods, and that means before the 19, before 2000 and uh, before the 2000, uh, uh, they, Israelis were more interested in Palestinians. And of course, now they're not interested in Palestinians because they built the wall and they think the Palestinians are behind the wall so they have, can forget about them. So for example, my very first book, uh, The Third Way was published in Hebrew. And, and I uh, had lots of comments and lots of letters from Israelis commenting all, all sorts of things and saying, oh, we didn't know any of this and thank you for letting, uh, informing us about it and so on. And then when I wrote uh, uh, Palestinian Walks, it was published very well in Hebrew, and I had a signing session in, in Tel Aviv, in a bookstore in Tel Aviv, and I got some uh, responses and so on. But since then, I haven't had any other of my books published in Hebrew, although, as far as I'm concerned, 
I don't mind getting published in Hebrew because I feel that we must speak to the Israelis and 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 let them know about our situation because ultimately we are bound to live together. Sometimes I get very good things. So for example, one one time I got a letter from a teacher in the uh, in the school in Tel Aviv who said that she always assigns my books in Hebrew and there are several of them to her students and she gets the most interesting uh, essays written and I asked her to send me some of these essays and she did and and she said it's very important to speak to them before they go to the army because the army brainwashes them and after that it's impossible to do anything so uh, uh, yes but but it, it since since uh, 2000 and since the Palestinian books, I haven't had any books published. I haven't had offers for books to be published in, in Hebrew and, and none have been. But then my books sell very much in Jerusalem and, and there are many Israelis who read English, of course, and, and they read them in English. So I, I feel that my books reach the Israeli public by and large through their English publication, English version. Well, speaking of Jerusalem, we've got um, Michael Pritchard, in the audience and he says do you ever get a chance to walk in jerusalem and if so what is your experience of the city he says i'm doing a phd on walking in jerusalem well there are some nice walks in jerusalem in in the uh, western side uh, and uh, uh, they they also have nice paths tracks for for walking in and 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 yet when you walk in these places and these usually are uh, parks, uh, nature reserves, you always encounter uh, destroyed villages, remnants of destroyed villages. And, and this breaks your heart because here you are walking and you see remnants of uh, 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 destroyed villages and, and the sign says an ancient site or something like that. They never recognized that it was an ancient, uh, that, it, that it was inhabited only 50 years ago, 53 years ago. And, and so uh, as to the city itself, I think the city itself has been greatly destroyed by the Israeli developments and the Israeli arrogance because they have built settlements to the east of the city and the settlements to the east of the city are very well populated. And so everyone, almost everyone in the east, uh, in the settlements in these, in the, these eastern settlements have to commute to the city, to the center of the city, to the West Jerusalem. And so there are huge highways that have been built across and, and the city has become clogged with like, like the heart, arteries of the heart clogged with all these roads that have destroyed the beauty of the city. And it's all because of the colonial aspects that Israelis pursue and, and their demographic uh, interest in, in making sure that there are more Jews on the east, on the eastern side of Jerusalem than there are Palestinians. And, and so these have destroyed the beauty of the, of the city that used to be very attractive to my mind and has stopped being attractive at, altogether. Well, um, speaking, you mentioned these ancient sites that you come across in your walks. Uh, we've got a question from Martin Kemp. He's a documentary filmmaker, not the one from Spandau Ballet. You speak very eloquently in your books about the vanishing landscape of Palestine and of how, when you first walked there, every feature carried a name. Also how maps produced by the Palestinian Exploration Fund in the 1870s, 1880s began to 
a process that continues to this day of seeing Palestine through a prism of its biblical past. The PEF's work is celebrated in its early history, but those maps also recorded Palestinian names that have since been lost. Do you think that the maps could now help Palestinians bring that vanishing landscape back to life? Well, these are maps, of course, but uh, since then, the Israelis have renamed most of these places with uh, Israeli Hebrew names. And so uh, uh, we have to struggle against this process as well. But yes, some of the work that was done for colonial purposes by the British at that time of uh, archaeological uh, sites and of uh, putting, uh, you know, uh, the uh, names and the uh, uh, plants and all kinds of details on, on at all levels of the land are, are, of, are of great value, yes. Um, we have a comment from Najia Said. Can we organize an international symposium on Jerusalem, facts, faith, and future? Um, I'm really pleased to say that we did that uh, last year in October. So if you did, if you missed the Our Jerusalem conference, we have again, all the recordings, transcripts, audio and video recordings. So whatever is easiest for you to consume. Um, there, it's on our website in the past events section. So please do check that out. We are really proud of that. We produced a brochure with the summary of the excerpts from our main speakers. So if you don't have time to watch the whole thing, it was an all day event, then please do check out the excerpt. Um, I'm also pleased to say that in May, we've got another conference coming up on the rule of law. It, this one will be a two day event over two consecutive afternoons. So um, again, I'll post a link to our uh, future events page so that you can um, have a look at our upcoming events. We've got about three more uh, events scheduled over the next few months, including and in addition to our conference. So we're really proud of that. Um, I've got two questions for you, Raja, that are kind of um, on the same topic. So if you don't mind, I'm going to read both of them to you. One is from Michael Doe, one of our um, Balfour uh, Project um, members and, and um, executive committee members. Do you have any update, up-to-date information on what's happening to the families being faced with eviction and forced transfer in East Jerusalem? And then the follow-on question is from Jane Viren. Does it help if we support financially the rebuilding of demolished houses in Palestine when the same houses remain target for destruction, destruction time and time again? What is the best thing we can do? So is there any updated information? And I suppose, how can we help? Well, I don't have updated information except to say that some of the efforts by the EU now uh, to, to try and uh, pressure Israel to stop more of these it, it could be bearing some fruit because uh, Israel is susceptible to pressure when it is put in a serious way. And, and so far, with, especially under Trump's America, uh, they felt uh, uh, they had no free hand and, and everything increased and became worse and worse. So uh, it's still going on, still going on at a, a huge, uh, very fast pace, but pressure can help. As to demolitions, house demolitions, uh, yes, I think uh, giving money to rebuild is, is an act of solidarity that shows Israel that there is determination to, to, to stay put and to uh, not to give in to this policy. But I think the most important thing is to fight the policy itself because it's an illegal policy 
and and it, it it should be stopped. And at one point, the High Court in Israel said it should be stopped, but then they reneged on this. And and I think it's a most severe and unfair and uh, 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 collective punishment that is wrong and uh, uh, and unjust in all at, at all levels. Um. I'm sorry, I'm coming thick and fast with the questions because we've had so many. Um, we've got one from Carol Morton. Are you optimistic that any real resolution and or sanctions will come from the investigation into war crime, crimes by the ICC? Well, I, I'm, I, I am because I think the mere fact that the ICC is beginning to move on this question is in itself very important. And, and the, and the significance of this can be seen by the fact that Israel is so worried about this and has uh, started lobbying and, and preparing and, and taking action and pressuring the ICC and, and the staff and, and putting all its uh, diplomatic pressure to stop the process. You see, the point is that if the Israelis begin to feel that they will be accountable for their actions, then they would think twice. So far, they have killed in cold blood, done atrocious things without any fear and uh, thought that they would ever be uh, held accountable. And, and this can stop with the ICC. Even the threat of that is in itself important and, and can be uh, productive. So yes, I do have. And we will be touching on this topic quite a bit in our conference in May on the 25th, 26th of um of May. So please do come along to that. We've got some amazing speak speakers lined up and um, more information to follow. Um, sorry, let me just find the questions. Got one from Ahmed Ullah Farahat. To build a roadmap for liberation, there are important points which need consensus between the Palestinian factions. What points do you see are possible now and what points need pressure over time to achieve? Well, it's very unfortunate that there are so many divisions between the Palestinian factions, but I think uh, the fact that we have a common enemy keeps us together, however, uh, however there are divisions and, and, uh, and the process now of the elections is hopeful to, to bring people together and, and to, you know, the problem is that all the factions now have not united on a, a policy of how to uh, stop the occupation and how to move forward in the future. And without a, a unified policy, there cannot be movement and there cannot be hope. And I hope that they would find a way, maybe through the elections, to formulate a common policy and pursue it. And then there would be much more strength and possibilities for the future. But so far, it is very damning and very uh, uh, destructive that there are so many factions and that they, that they cannot get together and, and fight together the common enemy that we all have. Um, thank you for that very clear answer. Um, I would like to say that we've had more people comment on how, um, I like this comment from Colin Oxenforth, I'm not often shocked, but the details about all the financial chicanery are completely new to me. It's an example of cynicism and duplicity that should be more widely known. And you mentioned that you were going to be talking about it in more detail in your book. So um, can you, do you have any more information, the name, um, possible release date? 
Well, the book has just been finished and I'm in the final stages of finalizing it and the contract has just, it's about to be signed with profile books. So I think they will want to publish next year because it's too late for this year. And then there is no name yet, unfortunately, but it will be by profile books. And, uh, and uh, that is all I can say at this point. Okay, and well, and we it, will... Will, it will have a whole section on this question and on other questions relating to the right of return of the refugees and the work that was done. And, uh, you know, it, it's based on my father's uh, papers. And I must confess that for the longest time, I had hesitated and uh, been reluctant to look into these papers because I did not want to get entangled in my father's affairs and life and, and problems and issues. And then finally, and I put them all in this cabinet in my uh, uh, room in my office. And finally, I opened the cabinet and found a treasure of huge, amazing documents about all kinds of things and about all kinds of the Lausanne uh, negotiations, the negotiations in Lausanne in 1949 and, and the efforts that the uh, refugees had done to return, which are tremendous and which are not known at all about. And I write about all these things and I think it will be very, a great revelation to many people who read about things that they cannot find anywhere else and have not uh, been written about, unfortunately, and are unknown by the Palestinians themselves. Well, we look forward to that and we will um, keep everyone posted about when the book comes out because it sounds like we've got a lot of interest here. Um, I've got a comment from Claire Walford. Uh, Diana, please invite Philip Sands to your conference to give a clear account of the ICC investigation and international law. I am really pleased to say that he is already confirmed as one of our speakers. Um, we've also got Jack Straw. Um, we've got a few other people, um, Michael Spard, um, Professor Michael Link, um, and we've got quite a few more people um, in the mix. So I'm really, really pleased to say that we have already secured him. So hopefully you can all join us for that. Um, I am going to post a link to our donation page in the chat box because as you all know, we're doing these events monthly and actually over the next few months, they're sort of twice a month because we've got so many amazing speakers lined up that we just crammed them all in because um, we were just super interested to hear what they had to say and we hope you would as well. So uh, we would really appreciate if you can um, consider giving us a donation to support the work of the Balfour Project we're doing these, um, these webinars for free so that we could get them out to as many people as possible. We're posting the, the recordings, audio, visual, transcript on the website after the fact so that they can be shared even further and useful to anyone. Um, I will post a link to Alhaq in, um, on the website with the recording of this event. Um, we've had a couple of people ask for that so that you can follow Raja and his work. And, um, we're sort of wrapping up now, but Raja, uh, the final question I have for you from Magan Singodia, again, another ex-co uh, executive committee member of the Balfour Project, who always comes up with insightful questions. Um, bearing in mind that the Balfour Project is very much about the historic responsibility of Britain in Israel and Palestine. He asks, what are your thoughts on what Britain should do now? And what should we, I'm extending the question, what should we as British, uh, resident citizens, etc., be petitioning our MPs for? Well, I think the recognition of Palestine as a state is the foremost thing to be to be lobbying for. I think that is extremely important and, and would, would make a huge difference. 
and and would pass a real message to Israel and and push forward the uh, the peace in in the region very very strongly. But I also think that is uh, as I said in my talk, the British have never been British government has never been held accountable for their failures and. There are some very specific things. For example, from uh, uh, until 19, until May 14, 1948, they were responsible for law and order in the cities that were under their control. And some of these cities were part of the Arab state according to the uh, 47 uh, partition scheme. And they did not help the uh, people stay, in fact, they encouraged sometimes people to leave. And they have never been held accountable for this negligence, criminal negligence, which is exactly contrary to law. And I think it would be a good case to pursue, which has an important possibility of succeeding, at least a, 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 an apology, at least an apology for all these people who have lost their properties and, and were forced by Israel to leave and under terror by the Jewish organizations and Ergun and others. So, so sometimes specific things like that are important, but then of course the most important is the recognition of uh, Palestine as a state. Well, thank you so much for that, Raja. Um, I'm going to be forwarding all the comments from the chat box to you so that you can see how much appreciated it was that you spoke to us today. Um, we, I have posted the links to our upcoming events, but please do check that out on the website. And I just want to take this moment to thank you all for attending, um, all of those that came along. Like I said, we sort of had about 330 at the max. So really, really, really pleased that you're all coming along regularly um, and appreciating these as much as we're enjoying hosting them. Um, and Raja, I want to thank you on behalf of everyone who came along as well as the Belfort Project for speaking with us. And we really appreciate yeah. it. It's been a pleasure. All right, well, thank you all. And we'll see you at the next one. Bye. Bye, thanks.